This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi to everyone from One Woman Kitchen. This is Roseanne Gold. At the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are recording from my home in Brooklyn. We will continue speaking to the remarkable women from all over the world who are carving out unique places for themselves in the food world. And we will listen again to the women with essential businesses who are engaging with their customers and taking great care of their employees during this crisis. A crisis which illuminates a hunger for much more than food, namely for continuity and community. One such remarkable woman is Nikki Russ Fetterman, who is the fourth generation of the Russ family and the co-owner of the legendary Russ and Daughters appetizing stores and cafes in New York and Brooklyn. This year, Russ and Daughters is hosting their sixth annual second Passover Seder live on Zoom. Not only does this engage a world of New Yorkers, but also out-of-towners. And the proceeds of the event will go directly to support Russ and Daughters employees who are not currently able to work. The program is hosted by Rabbi Andy Bachman and the Russ family and features Elvis Costello, Diana Krall, Andy Nyman, and Lauren Sklomberg of the Klesmatics. There's a recommended donation of $20. Nikki's story is a most inspiring one, and I know you will enjoy listening to it today as you get ready for your holiday, whether you're celebrating Passover or Easter. After all, tradition is tradition, and Nikki carries the mantle of her own family's tradition, which began 106 years ago in a herring barrel on New York's Lower East Side. Listen in and have a good, safe, and happy holiday. The virtual Seder will take place on Thursday, April 9th at 7.30. For more information on the Seder, go to russanddaughters.com slash info. See you there. Thanks for listening. Nikki Russ Fetterman is an extraordinary ambassador for one of New York City's most legendary food stores, Russ and Daughters. In part, that's because she's actually a fourth-generation Russ daughter. Nikki, with her cousin Josh, runs the original store, now in its 150th year, and they are together the creators of two Russ and Daughter restaurants and the fabulous new Russ and Daughters bakery and takeout shop in Brooklyn's sprawling Navy Yard. Nikki's success is also thanks to a strong work ethic, creative strategy, and a commitment to balancing tradition with innovation. Within the New York food community, Nikki is already one of its most prolific entrepreneurs. Coming up, you'll hear about how Russ and Daughters began, how Russ and Daughter bagels continue to share more than a century of history, and why Nikki initially walked away and returned and never looked back. This is Nikki's inspiring and very delicious story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. 
and welcome to my kitchen. Nikki Russ Fetterman. Oh my God. You're here with me in my kitchen. I just can't believe it. I believe Lou Reed called you culinary royalty. Isn't New that York true? Royalty. New York if royalty. Could, yeah, I, could, I still can't believe that one. Well, but I have a feeling you are called many things because you are kind of the woman of the moment in the restaurant space and the food world inventing, creating every minute of the day. Oh my, thank you, Roseanne. I mean, you are someone I adore and look up to Mm. as an icon to me. So this is just a delight. Nikki, thank you. So Russ and Daughters has become a cultural institution. And there aren't that many restaurants you really could say that about, or really stores. And now you're everything. And that's why I say you're the lady of the moment. You're always onto something new. But Russ and Daughters started in 1914. I believe you're celebrating 104th birthday. 105th, yeah. 105th, okay. And you took it from a store, and you and your cousin, Josh, manifested its spirit, its soul, and uh, has really turned it into an, an international brand. So we're going to want to hear about all of this. But to get started, Nikki, You were pretty much born in a herring barrel. I think I read that quote somewhere. So tell us about that. Yeah, I grew up a shop kid hanging around our original store on the Lower East Side, watching my parents work, waiting for them, you know, very impatiently to finish working, getting put to do little, you know, odd jobs here and there, and really soaking in the... I, even at the time, I think I understood there was this, there was a magic to this mm. place. I didn't realize how rare it was. I thought that, you know, when I was a kid, I thought you go into every store and you hug and kiss the shopkeeper <laughs> and you catch up on your lives and you know, you know, the shopkeeper's kids and, and that people walk into a store and start talking about their memories and how mm. the food makes them feel. And I mean, both I understood there was something magical, but I also took it for granted a little bit not realizing that the world actually is not like Russ and Daughters. But I was also, you know, educated and um, encouraged to go off and do, you know, whatever I wanted to. And I, for until I was in my, you know, mid-20s, I, I really thought that was not Russ and Daughters. Um, Were you ever encouraged to go into the business because um, it has been so generational? This was your great-grandfather who started it? My great-grandfather, Joel Russ, started it. He arrived in America in 1907. You know, it's a classic Eastern European, you know, immigrant story. Uh, He actually started out just walking the street to the Lower East Side selling staple foods like herring Mm. to other Jewish immigrants in the neighborhood. Probably um, my grandparents. Probably. They were, you know, <laughs> they were there. there's a generational thing. Um, absolutely. And it took him seven years to work his way up from just selling herring out of a barrel to getting a pushcart, a horse and wagon. And then in 1914, he opened a shop. Mm. You know, his wife and three daughters lived behind the store. And he, in 1935, you know, he had made his daughters work in the shop from a very young age, like 11, 12. Unlike me, where it was just kind of fun and something I did after school, uh, they had no choice. They were required to work 
they were sort of required to marry men who were going to be good workers too. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but to his credit, he he actually did change the name of his business to Russ and Daughters in 1935, and which was um, something very unusual because stores were always and sons, that's right? right? And women were not so valued. Even in the, today, in 2019, today. if you look around, <laughs> think about it. Like, how many businesses are there? that say and daughters. Mm. Um, and he was the first in this country to put and daughters. In this country? Yes, yes. And he not only changed the name, but he made his daughters his partners. So it was a very controversial, bold move, born not so much out of him being a feminist, mm. although I'd like to think of him that way. I mean, the well, reality he is... He actually, you know, really walked and yeah, talked I mean, his but beliefs. I, but I don't know if he actually believed in elevating his, you know, daughters, or I don't think he understood the word feminist, who who did back right. then. But um, he didn't have a choice in a way. Like mm. He needed help. He understood that his daughters were good for his shop and mm -hmm. customers loved them. But yeah, that was my grandmother. That was her generation. The daughters who, you know, had to keep the shop alive. And I, they worked in the shop their whole lives? Pretty much, yeah. And they married, you know. Did um, they marry good workers? And did two everyone of them work did. there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> two, two of the three did. Um you know, and then my father, who you know very well, was the generation that was supposed to be the professional, the American success story, you yes. know, the doctor, the lawyer. And he did that for a while. And then he came and decided that he wanted to come back to the shop. Um, Nikki, actually, that's an important question. You know, the story about Russ and Daughters is in some ways pretty legendary at this point. I, I think so many people know it. And of course, there's a wonderful book about it, too, that your dad wrote. But I really want to get to some other pieces of this that maybe not everyone knows. And even that decision, do you actually know why your father decided to leave law and go back into the business? I mean, I think he was disgruntled as a trial lawyer mm -hmm. and the stress that that put on him. I think he he also didn't want to see Russ and Daughters disappear. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, without a successor it probably would have because my grandparents at that time, this is the late 70s, were the only, you know, they were the last two and they were in decline. And But your father had sisters, right? Had sisters, so they could but, have chosen, but yeah, they also did not. They did mm -hmm. not from like, they made that very clear. I think he felt pulled to the store. It, it, there's mm. something very real about this shop and the foods and the way it, you know, makes people feel. And, but it was tough, you know, because if you think about it, like he ran the business with my mother in the late 70s to about 2009 when my cousin and I took over. And and that that was before the food world, you know, exactly. exploded exactly. into what it is now. So a white collar lawyer who gave up law to run a an appetizing store, mm -hmm. right? Selling herring and bagels and locks. And I mean, this was not, this was seen by a lot of people as some the real downward trajectory. Like yes. maybe he got disbarred. Maybe he like wasn't a good lawyer. You know, I mean, like, what happened to him, right? Um, it's, 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 it's a, now today it's the, it's the, it's the flip, right? Like so totally. many people are leaving law or, you know, they don't want to go to law school. They want to go to culinary school. And, but he didn't have that. Nikki, do you actually know the year that your father did go back? Yes, it was 1979 because I was two years old. Okay. So it is very interesting timing because it's around the time that I decided to drop out of graduate school and become a chef. And it was considered 
kind of a step backwards or the wrong direction to go in. And the culinary world was not what it is today. So that the timing is actually very interesting. I mean, I always think of you and my father as real pioneers in what the food world is today because you mm-hmm. were doing it and you were at the forefront of doing it before the world was really looking and appreciating the art and craft yeah, of, of thank you cooking for that. and making food and serving food. Right. So how about you? Because you so educated, you speak many languages. I think you were on a different path for sure. Your brother's a doctor. What kind of grabbed you? What pulled you in? Well, what happened was, as I said, I grew up in the shop. And as I got older, I was given more and more sort of tasks to do. When I was off in college or traveling the world, there was always an expectation that my brother and I would come home and work during the busy holiday seasons. But I, yeah, after college, I, I packed up and I moved out to San Francisco, I think very, on some level to get as far away, staying in this country, but as far away from, <laughs> you know, the, the Lower East Side and Russ and Daughters as I could with this idea of, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to carve my own path. And mm-hmm. I moved back to New York actually right before September 11th happened. Mm. And then I, so I, I, then I told my parents that I would come and I would help out at the shop. But just, it was a, for me, it was just a temporary gig, you know, until I sort of figured out my next move. My father very quickly took that as his exit strategy. I didn't understand. And grant you, you know, mind you, I was 23 at the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, I didn't appreciate that my father was really kind of winding down in his tenure and was looking for a way out. And he saw me as his heir apparent, so to speak. And And you had some sense of this or not at the time? So very quickly it became clear because, you know, only a few months had passed when he very abruptly told me that uh, I had to make a decision. And either I had to take over or he was going to sell. Which, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's a a bind to be put in, you know, when you're 23. And I didn't want either one of those things to happen. So Mm. I didn't want Russell Dollars to get sold off and probably turned into some chain or driven into the ground. I didn't want my life decided for me by my father at the age of 23 in this way. No, I really appreciate this perspective. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it was tough, but I uh, realized that I needed to step away. And so I left uh, Russ and Daughters. My father was kind of heartbroken, uh, mm. but it, it, in the end, it all worked out the way it was supposed to because it was right at that time that my cousin Josh, who was a chemical engineer out <laughs> west, was starting to have his own, you know, um, reflection on, you know, what meaningful work was to him and what mm. the store meant to him. And, our, and he called up my dad and said, you know, hey, can I come and learn from you? At first, my father was trying every which way to put the kibosh on this. Because he, he wasn't a daughter? Yeah. Uh, no, I, no, honestly, I think he, he thought that because whereas I grew up in, the, in right. the shop, Josh did not. And so my father was concerned that Josh had these sort of romantic notions mm-hmm. of what it means to work making and selling food. And he figured Josh wouldn't last a month. <laughs> but then when I said that I was stepping away, you know, he really had no choice. So, mm. so Josh was able to come in and he was able to learn literally from the counter up without me, you know, complicating things. Mm-hmm. So it was Josh first. So it was Josh first in a way. I took a couple years 
like what I considered like my wandering Jew phase. (laughs) And in a way, it was what I needed without any kind of expectation. I left New York. I left, you know, I really stepped away. But I started to reflect and think about Russ and Daughters in a in a whole new way. Mm. And I realized that I could, whereas I had up until this point kind of seen it as this mom and pop, which literally it was, yes. it was my mom and my pop, right? <laughs> my mother and father that was sort of stuck in time. I thought like if I ended up doing the same work that my parents and grandparents and great grandparents had mm-hmm. done, that somehow I was, that would be a failure, you mm. know? Um I thought that I was supposed to be, you know, I was supposed to do, quote unquote, better, something better, right? Mm. But when I really started to look at it, I kind of was able to flip all of that around and realized a couple of things that I could do two things at once. I could keep the magic of this place, the history, the tradition, the, the food, but also I could put my own stamp on it, you know? And so there was this freedom to, you know, evolve, um, to, And I also realized that, especially in this country, being part, being able to say that you're a fourth generation, you know, part of four generation lineage is so rare. And it wasn't this burden that I had been thinking it was. It was actually this real gift and Mm. um, beautiful thing. And I also realized that I could approach Russ and Daughters, even though it's 105 years old, (laughs) I could sort of look at it as, in a way a startup of some sort, you know, that I could bring something new to it. So with that in mind, I kind of, I called my father and I said, (laughs) okay, you know, I want in and I really want to do this now. This is, I want this to be, uh, I'm making the choice. And he said, well, that's nice, but now you got to talk to your cousin because he's involved. Ah, and um, oh, this is great. I actually don't know this story. Yeah. mm -hmm. Luckily, Josh, you know, wanted a partner and we, we sort of saw Russ and Daughters in the same way. So it was a, it was a really, it's been a, an, a really great partnership. I should say. And so the few years that you took to really reimagine what this meant for you, you know, it was just the one shop, an appetizing shop. And you can tell us a little bit more about what appetizing really means. But now you have two restaurants. You just opened in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. You have this enormous facility making Everything, uh, the bagels and the babka and just everything. We'll want to hear more about that. But I am wondering, Nikki, at any point did your wonderful mother, Maria, who's a little bit unsung because she was in there in the trenches every single day. Did she ever take you aside and give you any kind of advice or actually steer you consciously, unconsciously in one direction or the other? Yeah, no, my mother was uh she she was a chem- she was a research chemist who ended up little by little getting, you know, sort of drawn into uh the bagel and lox world. <laughs> um and then was my, you know, partners with my father for 30 years. She actually was was con- very consciously sort of steering me away from Russ and Daughters, you know, because she it's it's really hard work and it was a different time when they ran it and um I mean, I don't work with my spouse, but like, you know, family business is very... can be very tricky. It's very tricky. <laughs> so she, see, she wanted something else for me. But at the same time, she also consciously kept a place for me. So when I went off and, you know, said, I'm, I'm done, I'm, you know, and I kind of had a couple of years of reflection, um, she kept literally and figuratively kept a space for me. It's in large part because of her that I was able to come back. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mothers. Oh, mothers. Mothers. <laughs> so wonderful. So, Nikki, when we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about what it was actually like to grow up in your house as opposed to the store and hear a little bit about your grandmother, who I know died recently and you were very, very close to her, and just what it means to be a Russ in New York City. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by... Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. So, Nikki, I used to go to Russ and Daughters when I was very young, and I have a vivid memory. It wasn't exactly like being in a candy store, but it kind of was because you had cookies and there were the jelly rings, the chocolate-covered jelly rings and... Did you also have those little rainbow cookies? I don't remember. Or maybe, no, no. Maybe this was Ruggalach. And yeah. so what is just like one f- when you were little, because you said you went there since you were a tiny little girl, what what were the things that were evocative to you? I, one thing that was evocative was, that's not there anymore, um, is Buxa. Do you know what Buxa is? I have no idea. Buxa <laughs> How is. How do you spell it? And what B-U-X-A-R, is it? but you don't pronounce the R, so it's like Buxa. And buxa is dried carob pods. And when I was a kid, there was a barrel of buxa that was next to where we have all the sweets and the dried fruits and coffees. And and the buxa are kind of these U-shaped, brown, desiccated, hard pods. And people, mostly older Jewish men, would stand around this barrel and they would like chew on the buxa. It was like the water cooler, but (laughs) in an appetizing store. And as a child, I was intrigued and also a little, you know, intimidated by this. But actually, when we were thinking about opening a restaurant, you know, one of the things I said was, uh, we have that we had to have buxa on the menu. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I thought so many people were going to remember buxa, um, but... But, you know, unfortunately, it's it really, you know, if you don't know Buxa, Roseanne, I don't know know who knows Buxa. Nikki, that is an amazing visual. It's like, you know, a bunch of guys sitting around chewing tobacco. Yeah. Um, But we made a we made a Buxa egg cream and we we make that now at the restaurant, Russell Dollar Cafe, and it's delicious. So it's the kind of thing where for the one person who remembers the Buxa barrels, it's very evocative. And hopefully for everyone else, it's just delicious. Well, I didn't know we were going to talk about an example of the true importance of Russ and Daughters, just as uh, uh, an institution that has defined history in, in so many ways. So even though it hasn't changed, it kind of has changed, and yet you try very hard to grow and develop and be creative, but still keep the essence of what Russ and Daughters is. So what are some of the changes, though, that you have seen in terms of this store itself? And then we'll definitely talk about all of the new creations, the restaurants and products. And Well, inside the store itself, hopefully not too much has changed, or at least the feeling, the smell, the look of the showcases, the, you know, the banter over the counter. You know, our goal is that it's the same, that this People walk in there and they are immediately flooded with memories of coming there, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, all the senses are represented there, sight and smell and touch and sound, and it's got it all. It really does. Exactly. And and the changes that we have made, um, 
you know, are things that we don't, that the customer shouldn't even, the public shouldn't even really know or care about, you know, mm. like the fact that we have switched from old school scales to, you know, digital scales, <laughs> things like, you know, that, that make it easier to have the place run. But the, the essence of the place, the food, the taste, that all are, you know, our goal is that that all stays the same and that Russ and Daughters, both as a physical place and as a, you know, a, a food institution creates a, you know, is a counterpoint to a city like New York where the city itself is constantly changing, food tastes change, trends come and go. The Russell is this kind of constant. And um, I think it's a very powerful thing because it's so rare. And um, there's such a sense of coming home, right? Yeah. And that's why you have lines around the block, certainly before the yeah. Jewish holidays and rituals and traditions. Right. And, and I think in this, you know, in this age where we're all sort of slaves to our phones and we can and we have the convenience of being able to get whatever we want, you know, online, I think the fact that people, as you say, come and they take a number and they wait in line in this tiny shop that's no more than, what, 800 square feet, and th that it speaks to, I think, a, a really primal need that we have to share food and to know the people who make and serve our food and to do that in the company of others. And that's, you know, you can only do that in the real world and not sort of on a screen. It, it's so beautiful because really as your family has continued to create these legacies and to keep the generations going, you in effect are also doing it for us. Mm. So I think maybe that's why we all love Russ and Daughters and sort of worship at its altar and, and are so excited by the changes and the inventions and the creativity of you and, and Josh. So it was always just the one store and it was always in that location. Right. Okay. So now what have you done since you and Josh actually signed the contract or whatever to yeah. be the official owners? Yeah, the which fourth is generation. We passed the torch 10 years yes. ago from the third generation to the fourth. Um, and well, how do you go about making these changes? Yeah. Because it's huge. Yes. So in the last, even less than in five years, you know, we opened two restaurants. Mm. We built out an 18,000 square foot bakery and production space and counter and we're growing you know we've grown 300 percent extraordinary but it all comes back to that tiny little shop on the lower east side because that was that is and will always be our the the heart the soul the history but also our reference point that's Start a delicate balance nikki actually to to grow and also to keep the history of a place without mm -hmm. wrecking it and yeah. i'm sure the two of you think about that all the time all the time and it it it's a it's not a burden it's it's actually for me it's this fascinating creative challenge of mm. like how do you do those two things at the same time because they don't always you know they're kind of in conflict with one another right like trying to stay the same preserving a tradition but then also keeping it moving forward and you know and innovating well i i would say the public thinks you have actually done a brilliant job uh, of it because we just keep on coming along with you and want to experience yeah. every new thing you're doing. Well, you know, I, it's really, it's not like we had some master plan and we mapped this out. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's really, my question. Yeah, how, how, it, how did this happen? It, it's, it was, it's really been, it's been very organic um, and really just seeing sort of the the needs in front of us. So, so restaurant opening one. a restaurant mm -hmm. was born out of 
just seeing increasingly the number of people coming into our store, literally walking into our kitchen area in the back because they just assumed that's where the seats were. Oh. People wanted to come to our stores <laughs> and they weren't satisfied anymore taking it home. They wanted to eat Russ and Daughters at Russ and Daughters. And all we could do was to point them to the two, you know, little benches out front, <laughs> you know, in the middle of whether it was 100 degrees or 20 degrees outside. Or people would call and say, you know, can I get a table for five? And we'd have to say there are no tables. <laughs> so it just felt like that was a missing element to Russ and Daughters. But we didn't know anything about running a restaurant. I had never worked. We never worked in restaurants. Um, it's really unimaginable that you pulled it off and, you know, it's so great. And uh, I think it was, you know, the, the learning curve was very steep, but we really looked at the store as, again, as a reference point and just thought, how do we take the elements of our food tradition and our history and this space and bring it to a sit down environment that feels Hamish, you know, like a, that's a Yiddish warm word friendly. for warm, friendly, authentic, Welcoming. but also elevate it so that, you know, you're having a, a, a full sit down meal with cocktails and, you know, desserts and servers. And, um, and Nikki, for those who haven't been there, though, describe what an appetizing store has and what some of the the things are that you offer. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, that would be helpful, right? Um, <laughs> um, so Russ and Daughters is one of the last remaining appetizing food businesses. Appetizing is one of New York's quintessential food creations. And it's the sister tradition to delicatessen. Hmm. So if you think of pastrami and corned beef at a delicatessen, you think bagels and lox. <laughs> Uh, and herring and herring <laughs> and you know all the schmears and the cl traditional baked goods like babka and rugula black and whites that's appetizing um so it sure is yeah it's literally <laughs> and figuratively um and that's you know so bagels and lox that's appetizing that's russ and daughters appetizing food can be very i mean at its root it's very humble Jewish immigrant food. So Eastern European Eastern as opposed European, to Jewish. Middle Eastern or Israeli. Exactly. Or, mm -hmm. But it can also, you know, now you can come for a bagel, you can, you know, come for a martini, come for a martini and <laughs> a half kilo of caviar. So um, <laughs> that is appetizing food. That's our tradition. And we uphold it. You know, we still slice all of our smoked salmon by hand. Mm. You know, there's still this old fashioned over-the-counter experience where, you know, you you feel that you really know the people who are serving you. And you were able to translate that into a fantastic menu. I remember the first time I went there, I was so taken with the graphics of the menu. And the menu is the placemat. But mm -hmm. I'm also thinking the idea of the word quality. You Everything you do and everything that Russ and Daughters is, is all about top of the line, yes. quality. Yes. And maybe that's also one of the threads that you carry through with everything that you are doing with the new projects, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we didn't have our quality, we wouldn't have a reputation and Russ and Daughters wouldn't be around for 105 years. And so that's always the, the number one objective. And then it's preserving the taste memories of these foods. And sometimes that's a real uphill battle because we're going against changing food taste, but also foods as, as basic to Russ and Daughters as bagels, you know, we've always 
maintained and sold what is a traditional New York bagel, even when as bagels have become so ubiquitous, you know, ubiquitous yeah. they've become these sort of mass produced things. So to, to maintain it's, it, we have to uphold, you know, you taste our bagel. It has to taste the same way that you remember it, mm. um, you know, some decades ago. So it's this balance of the quality, but updating it too, to, you know, our sensibilities of and taste of today. You mean like your wonderful dessert with your halva sundae, I think Yeah, it the is. halva ice yes. cream. Or the halva ice cream. Yeah, we, we look at, with the menu development, you know, it's we're looking at the store, our original store as our pantry, you know, and whether it's halva ice cream or buxa egg creams <laughs> or latkes that we now plate with, you know, we have what's called the lower sunny side. What and, is that? You know, you get, uh, it's, our latkes with hand sliced Gaspe Nova and two sunny side up eggs. So it's like mm. your, it's like the <laughs> New York version of the farmer's breakfast, I guess you would say. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. So you have the restaurant on the Lower East Side. You have just opened your restaurant. Well, it's a, a one or two years now in the Jewish Museum yeah. on the Upper East Side. Yes. And you have just opened, you said, an 18,000 square foot restaurant takeout and bakery in Brooklyn Navy Yard. The Navy Yard is not we don't have a restaurant there, but you can oh, order just takeout? Mm-hmm. it's yeah, you order at the counter like you do at the original shop and then there's a lot of um the nice thing is that there's a lot of public seating. Yes. So there's indoor seating, outdoor seating. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And what are you actually producing there? So all of our baked goods are we make there. Um And so this is something new that you're making yeah. Now. Yeah. So in the last five years, we've opened up our own bakery and similar to the way in which we didn't know anything about restaurants, but we had to become restaurateurs. We weren't bakers, but we had to learn <laughs> how to do that. And so we, yeah, we bagels, bialis, schissel rye, pumpernickel, black and whites, babka, hamantash, and these mm. quintessential kind of Jewish baked goods we're making there. We have all of our kitchens there. Um, so mo- the majority of our prep, food prep is happening there. We ship around the country. So our shipping facility is, is there. And then we also built out, you know, a beautiful appetizing counter. So people can have the same experience that they have on the Lower East Side or on the Upper East Side, but with a lot more space around them. <laughs> and you are always inventing because you mentioned before something that you ate just this morning for breakfast and it sounded so good. So can you describe it oh, for uh, us? Oh, Roseanne, this is my weakness now. <laughs> I have one of these almost every morning because my office is right next to our bakery. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> and as it is, I'm always going in there and, you know, checking in. Um, we make these, these sweet buns, so they're made with, the babka dough, but then we're at we put in the center um, fresh farmer cheese and cream cheese, mm. um, sweetened and then with raisins. And this with a cup of coffee is you know my new uh, oh my breakfast. Um, so, and, and you have a name for it? Well, we actually don't have a good name right now. We just call them sweet buns. But if anyone <laughs> has a good idea. I would love to know, you know, babka buns or... Oh, that's adorable. Babka buns, babka yeah. Babka buns are but, really fun. Yeah. But, does, but it's does different it look like from... A, like a hamburger roll? Is it that kind of a... Does it have it, an egg wash on it? What it has it an egg like? wash on it, and then mm-hmm. it has the, the sweet cheese in the middle. So ah. it's like oh. not a Danish, but it's it's singular, <laughs> and it needs a good name. So 
I hope people will come to the Brooklyn, to the bakery and taste it and then be inspired. All right. So that's something totally new. And will you be selling that everywhere too? Or do you, will it be in the Jewish Museum? Eventually. It's so new. We're just, you know, that's the beauty of having our bakery right there and all these kitchens and we can create things. And, you know, like I said, it's always this fine balance of developing new things, but it always has to make sense within our tradition. So, yeah. So Russell Daughters is the most famous for having the um, best smoked salmon in the country uh, and, and different varieties. And I know how difficult it is to slice smoked salmon. So how long does it take? How many years of training do you need before you can really do it well? It's a real slicing, hand slicing smoked, smoked salmon is a real art. And, and um, it takes a long time. And we're as we've grown, you know, now we have, you know, we're not just a store. We have all these locations. We've, we're have we training a new generation of, of slicers. And it's hard because especially young people want things to happen quickly. <laughs> and, well, when I meet someone who I'm interviewing to be a slicer, I'll, I'll test them out. Hmm. And we'll put a knife in their hand. We'll show them what we do and then just have them try. And it's really just to, we can I can see if someone has the potential to be able to get this. Oh, how wonderful. Um, because it's this, you know, it's this funny thing where you're using the knife. It's a special knife. You don't find it anywhere else. It's it's like spatial relations to be able to understand these angles and glide the knife through the fish and be able to make these micro delicate movements with your hands so that it's so it's thin enough that, you know, as we mm. like to say, you can read the newspaper through it, um, but it doesn't, you know, stays, it keeps its integrity. So it's all these, it's a lot. And it takes a long time. So I have to then tell someone, you know, you're going to be able to get this, but you have to be okay with being really bad at it for a long time. Mm, Not a comfortable place to be. No, no, not at all. Because it just takes, it just takes time and it it could take months. It could take years. And, uh, but I think once you get it, there's this really, um, muscle memory, muscle memory. And there's something very beautiful and therapeutic sort of hypnotizing about about slicing salmon both for the slicer and for the customers watching mm. and so i think part of that's why you see um slicers you know have been doing this with our, my family for 20 30 40 years because there's there's really something to it and the good news is you can take all of the ends and the mistakes and mix it into the cream cheese so for your yeah, right. <laughs> cream cheese with chives. Exactly. Oh, Nikki, this is so, so wonderful. But I'm going to ask you a slightly hard question. What are some of the major challenges? Like what frustrates you? What, what doesn't go right? How much control do you have? It's really the two of you who are the kind of tippy top and now you are managing more and more people become a much bigger organization. It's no longer the mom and pop. I mean, spiritually, I know it is because mm-hmm. you and Josh really feel strongly about that. But yeah, what are some of the challenges presenting themselves? Uh, I mean, one of the challenges is that I think as Russendorf has become sort of this well-known, well-loved, I hate to say brand, but I guess you could, we've seen copycats. Um, we've seen ah. places popping up not just in this country, but internationally as well, that are taking our, trying to look, be Russ and Daughters. Mm. And um, we first learned about this because we started to get calls from people saying like, I didn't realize you opened another location and, oh. you know, in, in Brooklyn at that point. And then, and we said, no, we, 
this before we opened at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I said, no, we, we haven't opened in Brooklyn yet. And then we realized, oh, this is what's happening. And that's a real, you know, it's a real, ch- not just a challenge, but I think on a very deep personal level, mm. it really is hard because. It's a kind of theft it's of, a, inter- it, of intellectual property for sure. But in your case, it's a hundred years. There's something very personal about it. This is not just a business affront. That's right. Very, very personal. That's right. And then mm. also, I think as a society, I think, you know, there are few, we have very few places with the history and the singularity and the traditions. And why why dilute that by trying to copy it, you know, let it be what it is and appreciate it for what it is. So that's that's a challenge. And yeah, just trying to be in a lot of different places at once. Mm-hmm. It was a lot easier when we just had the store. And then when we opened Rossendar's Cafe, that's, you know, I would just walk up and down Orchard Street five or six times a day. <laughs> uh, but obviously now I move around a lot more. Yeah, life was simpler then. Life was so simpler. And Nikki, you're also a mother of two children, a three-year-old and an eight-year-old. So a question now is, do they come to the store and what are they in, most enticed by? My three-year-old is a bit of a maniac, so I... Little boy. <laughs> literally, uh, so I, I'm always cautious when I bring him to the shop or the restaurant because I'm just, like, waiting for some some collision to happen or something, <laughs> a break. My eight-year-old is a real critic uh, in a good way. You know, she'll taste the chicken soup with matzo balls, and she'll tell me if it was as good as it was, you know, the last batch she had. Terrific. Um she loves the we make all of our own sodas at the restaurant. Mm. So she loves the grape soda that we make. Does she like smoked salmon? She kind loves of smoked, both of them love smoked salmon. Mm, okay. And she loves caviar, which I have to be oh, careful no. about. Yeah. <laughs> she came to the restaurant once. She was four at that time. And I ordered her uh, mushroom barley soup. Mm-hmm. And she, without skipping a beat, just turned right to the to our, the server and said, I'll have some caviar. Black caviar. <laughs> oh boy, I'm in for, you know, in oh. for. But I, I hope that they pick up, you know, both just through being around me and being uh, in Russ and Daughters and eating the food that they hopefully pick up some of the magic that I felt when I was a kid. But, you know, I also have to kind of toe the line of for them, letting them go off and do their own thing and. It sounds like history will repeat itself. Yeah. I mean, yes. But I I also hope that I can do it in a way that they do feel like it's their choice and that I will be cool enough that when it's their turn, that I'll be able to step back and say like, okay, you want to do this crazy new thing? Like, I think that's a bad idea. But if you want to do it and you think that's good for Russ and Daughters, go for it. I don't know. That's, we'll see if I'm... There's no question. There will be con- a fifth generation. I'm sure of it. Nikki, when we come back, I want to hear about your legacy recipe, what's meaningful to you now, and how you balance everything. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Nikki, I do want to talk a little bit about your grandmother and what life was like in your house growing up 
in your home kitchen. Uh, I know you spent a lot of time in, in the store, but there was a separate life at home and Jewish traditions and holidays. And uh, your grandmother, who was one of the three Rust daughters. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, the holidays were and still are really about serving everyone else. Mm. Um, so the holidays are always a cre- incredibly busy time. Um, and now it's not just the Jewish holidays. We are as busy during Christmas as we are during, you know, Yom Kippur. And as uh, Easter as bu- is as busy as Passover. Um, so the holidays were always in a, l- a little bit of an afterthought within the home because uh-huh. we'd have to get through and so it was really all about the store in many it's ways. Always about said, the store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always about the shop, always about the shop. Getting, you know, serving <laughs> everyone else. Um, but that being said, our my grandmother Anne was the youngest of the three daughters. She was very much the matriarch and Josh and I share her as our grandmother and this is Anne. This is Anne. Mm-hmm. Um and that her house was you know where all the cousins and would come together. But yeah, and then at home, my parents, you know, there was, there wasn't really, you know, work and home always Mm. kind of, the lines were always very blurred. I think many of us maybe not, do not fully understand that, what it really means to have a a small business. Yeah. And that it really does take, take over in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, my parents were completely devoted parents and there was, we, we always sat around the table for dinner um, and you know, my brother and I always came first in terms of sharing, you know, the highlights of our day. Mm. But inevitably, the conversation would always <laughs> end up going back to the shop, the shop, and <laughs> what happened with this customer and this delivery. Oh, but Nikki, I mean, but you must have had the most amazing stories. Your customers were so famous. So they were yeah. celebrities, writers, actors. Everyone wound up there. Musicians. Who were some of the outstanding? people that you either heard about when you were young or who you actually met in in the shop. I mean honestly Roseanne <laughs> ev- to this I mean even to to this day everyone comes to Russ and Daughters. That's true. I I literally can't even isolate a few names because uh, you Is know, there anyone for you personally uh who walked into the shop? I mean did Barbara Streisand kind of mosey in one day, or she's ordered. She hasn't... <laughs> um, I'm just wondering who it would be for you, Nikki. For me personally, um, who would you love to see Steven Spielberg uh, has is a customer. Uh, he comes to the Jewish Museum uh, when he's in town, our mm. Upper East Side location, nice. and that that you know he for me evokes yeah that that's pretty tradition special. And legacy, tradition, legacy, beauty, craft. You know, he also grew up in a dairy restaurant. His mother ran a kosher restaurant in L.A. Steven Spielberg's yes. mother? Yes. Had no idea. Yeah. Wow. What was the name of that? Yes, it was called the the Milky Way. And she ran it until, uh, I think, till she she passed away. Mm. So it's just, you know, I think that that's a meaningful one for me. But literally everyone you could think of comes and... And, um, and some of the best stories are probably by the people who are not so well known, yes. but who have been coming for generations. And everyone's got a everyone a story. comes, everyone takes a number, everyone is treated the same. And I think that's part of um, the the beauty of Russ and Daughters. This way in which it's a very democratic place where everyone lays claim to owning the food and the history. And you know, if you walk into our restaurant. 
there are family pictures on the wall, but we very intentionally didn't put any sort of captions underneath mm. um, to say, you know, this was Joel Russ and his three daughters, and this was, you know, Herb Fetterman, my grandfather, at the ca-. because you know everyone can look at that and remember, and hopefully it evokes memories of their own history and their own families. And mm, so you so scan the room at Rustar's Cafe on any given day, and you're going to see. You're going to see those A-list celebrities, but then you're going to see a family of, you know, three generations and um, tourists from out of town who read in a book that, you know, this is where you come to eat, to taste New York and um, the hipsters and, you know, the the senior citizens and... It's really a, a mixture unlike any other, right? Because yeah. it's kind of very high-low, too. Very in much terms so. Of, I mean, we're really talking about luxury foods, and some are very expensive, but we're also talking about Eastern European and the Lower East Side and herring, which That's is right. sort of a you know, That's right. You can, food. at one table, you'll see people eating you know, a platter of herring. Another one, they're having blintzes and a cup of coffee. And then at another table, they're having a huge blowout of smoked fish and caviar <laughs> and champagne and and it's all good. And, and your it's daughter is there sitting with them, right? Yeah, exactly. She's running the show. Oh. Um, and I have to say, Roseanne, you and your husband, Michael, edited a book, 1001 Restaurants, restaurants to Experience Before, before You Die. die. Mm-hmm. And you included Russ and Daughter's Cafe in that book. Had it opened? It ha- <laughs> Are we allowed to say it hadn't <laughs> yes. opened? Yes. It hadn't opened. Um, but I want you to know that the the trust that you put in me to say i i trust that you're going to make something that is special before i'd even opened it before i even knew how to run a restaurant was so profoundly motivating to me and also solidified the fact that oh boy we really can't mess this up (laughs) Um, it's in print it's in print but also we have to build something that will that will last you know, Nikki, thank you. You know, we felt perfectly fine about doing that because we knew the food and we knew you. And I think it was a little bit of a futuristic piece. I don't think we said we had dined there yet, but it was really about expectation and hope. And then, of course, your fulfillment of, of all of that and then some. So I'm very curious. You grew up in a house with your mother is Spanish. She's Colombian. Yeah. Colombian. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the reasons you speak fluent Spanish and you speak fluent French. And mm-hmm. now I'm also hearing that maybe you Japanese. also spoke Japanese. Yeah. And and I'm very curious, but this would be another show, what you actually did those two or three years when you were wandering as a young woman before you made this big decision. But what was like a comfort dish growing up? Did Was there something your mother made that you loved, that's something that's totally out of the realm of what we're talking about today? Oh, um, yeah. A, a, I mean, a, a smell or a memory from... Yeah, she she would make, it's very simple, but it was comfort food for me. She would make, this is not Colombian, this is not Jew, I don't know where she even got this from. It's mom mom food. food. (laughs) uh, Lentils with brown rice and uh, chopped, like, boiled carrots in uh, seaweed, like a roll. Like, it was an early, kind of a... Really? Yeah, a hearty roll. And now... It was hot? It was hot. And, um... That's yeah, brilliant. I don't know. This was just she came up with this, and now periodically she makes it for my kids. So you know, 
That's where history repeats itself. A mom role, a mom Maria role. role. Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. Lentils, rice, carrots. Uh, was there a sauce? Was mm. something kind of made it wet? No. Just, yeah. The lentils were very moist. Ah, okay. Seasoning, yeah. cumin, anything in there? I mean, I'm trying I, to taste this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what seasoning she put in. I mean, outside of the, you know, salt and pepper, I don't know. I don't know. I have so to ask her. So this is so great. I clearly this is don't make it myself. completely unique, right? Con- yeah. Unique to your experience, to your mother, and now that your children are having it is really beautiful. And was there something that Grandma Anne was known for? Did she make something that you loved? Oh, she would make this, again, this is outside of, you know, Ross and Dars, but she mm-hmm. would make this um, halibut in a to- in a tomato sauce base mm-hmm. with vegetables that I that I loved. Even as a kid, you know, when that's that's not really sort of a, yeah, kid, that's a flavor a kid that kids thing. are drawn to. I love that dish. Oh, nice. And do you know how to make that? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to we'll try to figure it out together one day, Nikki. Um, speaking of food and legacies, what is a legacy recipe for you? I mean, if I think of Russ and Daughters, I think the bagel. Our bagel is a legacy recipe because it speaks to our commitment to maintaining this tradition. Our recipe takes two days mm. to make, you know, and people don't realize that. I mean, most most bagels out there are made much more quickly in a sort of mass production style. But we don't cut those corners and, you know, we use unbleached non-bromated flour, a pre-ferment goes into each batch. So we're taking, you know, the dough from the previous batch Mm. and it goes into the current mix of, you know, when we're mixing the flour, the yeast, the water, we let the bagels proof and then retard. So for non-bakers out there, it's basically you're you're letting slow rise rise and then you're cooling it. Um, But that's a day and a half process Mm. of... And, you know, we're boiling them, we're baking them the traditional way. So we have wooden boards with burlap on top and, you know, six bagels to a board. It's all done by hand um, and we don't add any, you know, uh, additives to try to extend the shelf life. Mm. So, you know, and I'm very proud of that because if I think back five years ago, when Josh and I decided we're going to become bagel bakers and we're going to do this because previously my family had always worked with independent bagel makers, mm-hmm. but those people were, you know, sort of retiring or closing up shop. And then as we grew, they were unable to kind of keep up with us. So we needed to figure this out for ourselves. And I remember we made our first batch of bagels. We made a dozen bagels in just like a home, you know, one of our kitchens, the, you know, <laughs> KitchenAid mixer and a regular oven. It was kind of, it's kind of comical now. Um, <laughs> but we were so proud. And now, you know, on any, on a normal day, we're making 300 dozen bagels. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So I guess um, you figured it out. We figured it out. And but... Nikki, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, this is where they're being made? Yes. And behind a huge glass wall. So people can actually go and watch the process. Yes. What we, a fun thing to do. It's a beautiful space. It's a 3,000 square foot bakery, like you said, be- tall glass ceilings. And so on, you know, on any given day, you can watch bagels getting made, holla getting braided, mm. you know, um, 
schisel rye coming out of the oven, black and whites getting glazed. It's this beautiful dance. So it's it's very much open to the public So because we, we want people to really appreciate the craft that goes into this food. And at the appetizing counter, you can watch the slicers slicing by hand. And This is better than Disney. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's funny when you were talking about the actual process for making the bagels. I'm thinking now, it's so beautiful, that each bagel in and of itself is actually intergenerational because you are taking a little bit from the last batch and adding it. So this, too, your bagels also are legacy. That's a beautiful way to think about it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all in conversation. Mm. You know, the generations are always in conversation with one another. We are so lucky that Russ and Daughters exists, for sure. Nikki, I ask everyone this on the show. What does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? I think women have always been the uh, driving force in so many kitchens, both in and out of the home. And I, I think that um, this is we're in a moment now where women's um, talents and efforts are being recognized for what they are. And it speaks to the one woman. It speaks to the sort of, I think, women's, this sort of grit um, that women have to just sort of do it on their own, you know, and um, make things happen. Well, you certainly are the embodiment of that. Nikki, it was so great to have you here with me today. And thanks to all of you for listening to me and Nikki in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network.